So very good to be here with you tonight and those who I can't see. I'm glad that you're you're tuned in. I feel some obligation to teach in a way that is like presents a diversity of, of methods and has uh, flexibility and nuance in it. And at the same time, I feel distressed by that, that maybe things are kind of confusing or that you're adrift in your practice. And I care about, I care about your practice flourishing because I have a lot of confidence in what that can bring to you. So I'm going to talk for maybe the next, I don't know if it will be four talks, but it could be on the four bodhisattva vows as a framework for practice, as a way to get a sense of what, what Zen practice is. Sometimes I think I'm not a Zen practitioner, like I can never be like these Roshis I imagine in my mind who are all austere and super focused, simple, amazing people. I think I'm not, I can't join that club. But then I also secretly think Zen is the best thing. And I really like it. I think it's the best thing because it is, it's like a drawing made on water. It's the only religion I know of that deconstructs itself even as a religion. It's the only practice that has its own um, deconstruction built into it. It's about really being free even from Zen itself. So, and this could be said of any Dharma practice, really. Zen practice is beautifully nuanced. You can't pin it down to say it's about this or that. And that doesn't mean it's wishy-washy. It means it's alive. For example, we can't help but say that practice is... Fill in the blank. What would you say? Someone asked you, what is Zen practice? Someone might say, oh, it's about awareness, or it's about letting go, or it's about compassion, and it's about kindness. But that's all wrong. Because it's too small. It's expedient. It's, it's not definitive outside of the moment. Each moment, it may be one thing, but another moment, another so Zen practice has a yes and quality to it. Or it's just no. No, it's not that. Nope. There's the famous koan. The student said, what is, what is Buddha? And the teacher said, not mind, not awareness, not Buddha. But then earlier he had asked and the teacher said, it's Buddha. So Zen is mindfulness? No. It's awareness? No. It's just this moment? No. So Zen is nothing then? No. What is Zen? It's awareness. It's mindfulness. Okay. Zen is that I'm already enlightened? No. I'm not yet enlightened. I have to practice? No. 
If you're not already discouraged, that's fantastic. So what I think Zen is about is it's inviting us to see the way that we see. And to see that what we see and the way we see are interdependent. And that's a seamless thing. So, so much so, what we see and the way we see are interdependent that we often don't know we're seeing in a particular way and we simply take it for reals, for the truth, for the way it is, for the way they are, for the way the world is, the way I am. Like how a thought arises and it just declares itself as an authoritative perception of reality. And most of the time we're like, oh yeah, of course I thought it, it must be true. Politics are funny in light of practice because everyone's like, I can't believe those people could believe such asinine things. And of course they're thinking the same exact thing about you. So it invites us to see the way that we see. It invites us to see and be in the freest way appropriate appropriate to each moment. And we could call that compassion, but the problem is then, or we could call it freedom, but then our idea of what compassion is limits what it could be. Or our idea of freedom limits what freedom could be. So in practice, sometimes we dive into our suffering and suffer it. And sometimes we practice the dropping away of the one who suffers. Maybe in one sitting period, you move between those two kind of conditions. You're just like finally consent to being this terribly aching body and just agree to be miserable But then sometimes all that resistance drops away and there's just flow. Or sometimes we enjoy this moment as the only thing. We're practicing so that we just are living in that. But then sometimes we practice seeing that there's no such thing as this moment. Someone says Zen is about living in the present moment. Wrong. There's no such thing. We take up love for all beings and we let it go when love itself obstructs the freest being. We take up wise seeing when delusive thinking is sparking suffering. But then we have to let go of wise seeing because wise seeing sparks suffering. Have you ever been really enlightened when your in-laws come into town and you just can't wait to reflect to them the conditions of their minds and all the perspective you've gained, Uh right? So you see wisdom itself becomes not wisdom in, in a certain moment. So this makes teaching a challenge, presenting a rounded uh, living practice. And I love how Dogen says, uh, he just basically says, I fail continually at this. He said, he said it in different ways. 
he lamented his inability to really embody uh, a way of seeing and being that is so that is so free. He said, I can't do it, but I love to try, or I can do it sometimes. So presenting a, a, a rounded living practice is, is hard. And nowadays, for I think good reasons, not many people feel attracted to a traditional teacher-student template where they allow themselves to be guided over time in meditation. People want or perhaps need an independence in how they navigate. And that, that may be appropriate or the best thing for the times. Maybe for most people, that's the best thing. And so they're taking in many sources of teaching and trying to make the best decisions about how to practice. And that has its strengths and its, its weaknesses. So the Bodhisattva vows are a big framework that leaves a lot of, of room and nuance to find what's coming up for us in practice and engage it, but also have something of um, kind of milestones of the ancestors. It's not nothing, right? No, Zen can't be reduced to being in the present moment or being aware or being kind or I'm already enlightened. It can't be reduced to that, but it's not nothing. So the four Bodhisattva vows... Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to exhaust them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to end them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to embody it. There's different, I encourage you to look up different translations if, if you're interested in those kind of things, because they're worded in different ways. For example, the second vow used to be desires are endless. I vow to end them. And all the Americans went, wait a second here, people. I don't know if I can get on this boat. And maybe delusions is a better word anyway. Sometimes people react to the Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. Is this another like Buddhism is the best thing? Is this, is this religious bigotry? Sometimes it's translated as the awakened way is unsurpassable, right? A little bit more palatable for some folks. So in our Japanese lineages, these evolved into koans that in some schools you formally work with, with a teacher really investigating the four vows in an, uh, an intricate way. I found out that they came from a Chinese teacher named Zhi Yi. He was in the Tiantai school. So I think this was something like the ninth century. And he took them out of the Lotus Sutra. And these were the originals. Those who have not yet been ferried over, I will ferry over. So you know the metaphor of crossing to the other shore. I'm going to get to the other shore free from suffering. So this is a commitment to undertake that project. Then the second of these vows is 
Those who have not yet understood, I will cause them to understand. Those who have not settled themselves, I will cause them to be settled. Those who have not attained nirvana, I will cause them to attain nirvana. So I want to start with uh, the first one, and probably that's as far as we'll get today. Beings are numberless, numberless. I vow to free them. First place to start with the Bodhisattva vow is not like we're somehow superior to other traditions, say the Tibetan tradition, where they really take the Bodhisattva vow literally and seriously. That's really important, the concrete, practical, non-contribution to suffering. This is an important part of our practice, that our life and somehow is at at least a non-contribution to suffering. We're working on that. So it's it's a project. Or it's a contribution to wellness or goodness in the world. So we're, we're considering that. We're shining that mirror on how on our livelihood and how we spend our time and in our society, how we spend our money. We're considering this, this practical non-contribution to suffering. There's not a fixed recipe presented to you for to get the gold star. There isn't a gold star that applies to each person. But if we neglect this basic level of Zen practice, then then like what are we doing? If we're not actually concerned about the well-being of the world. Yes, we learn to put that down. But we only put it down because we pick it up. See what I mean? We can let go of the world because we're willing to also pick it up. And we can pick it up, pick up concern for the world because we know how to put it down. We need both. If we only have one or the other, then it's just a recipe for suffering. Dogen has a great essay called The Bodhisattva's Four Methods of Guidance. If you like reading Dharma, that's one worth, worth looking up. And he said there's basically four ways. He said kind speech, first of all. And he says you should know that kind speech has the power to turn a nation. And he recounts uh, a, a tale of a king who, for whatever reason, heard some positive speech and when he was a ruler came to be beneficent. So the power that what we say has in people's minds, the encouragement is to really not underestimate that. We focus a lot on not saying the things that could hurt people, and it's so easy for our mouths to hurt people. But the other is, I think, more generative. We can use speech to really make people, to really celebrate the virtue in people and to really encourage people. I don't know if you've heard me say that I, I don't think there are very many actual prideful people. There are people who have a, a shell of arrogance because they're actually insecure They don't actually feel good about themselves. So the thing about not complimenting people because we don't want to blow someone's head up 
often I think I'm mistaken when I think that. To really name beautiful qualities in people, when we can do that, it can be a profound thing. And when we're in the place to do that, we're in a particular kind of state of mind. You know that feeling when you don't want to compliment somebody? You don't want to like give up praise? There's something we, we hold on to in that. So kind speech, one of the practical non-contributions to suffering. Dogen talks a lot about giving and says, um, you shouldn't neglect a single opportunity to give. You shouldn't neglect a single opportunity to give. But he goes on to say, um, giving is taking up a human body and living a human life. Giving is undertaking the very livelihood you have to see that just to continue really living your life is itself already generosity is an important thing. Along with that question of, of, is my heart open? Because when the heart is open, it gives. The next one he talks about is identity action. An identity action is basically seeing ourselves in others or seeing others in ourselves. Not only do certain kind of actions flow from that, but that itself is a is a contribution to non-suffering or a not contributing to suffering. That separation of, oh, I'm not like that. But really seeing ourselves in others. And then he has what he calls beneficial action, which I don't actually recall so much of his commentary. So these are, are practical, the practical dimensions of beings are numberless. I vow to free them. It's not enough to be called Zen practice just to do good stuff and to be kind. But in a sense, it's our foundation. But let's consider some of the other dimensions when we, we take these as a koan. So beings are numberless. Reflect on just the diversity of beings in you. The diversity of voices that live in you. And how many of those are in a, in a place where you can accept them, even love them, and how many are rejected or scorned? And how do we free those, those beings in ourselves that are kind of outside the circle of love? Beings are numberless. To love the different iterations of who I am. Because as the cliche goes, it's helpful to repeat, what I can't love in myself, I can't love externally. Or what I scorn internally, I scorn externally. What I'm indifferent to internally, I tend to be indifferent to externally. 
So this is a key dimension of this, this beings are numberless, I vow to free them, the diversity of inner beings. How to free them. And the numberless part of the beings is an important aspect of on this. We tend to feel that we are one person in people's eyes or in the world. Like we have an idea of how we present and we assume that other people see us like that. But think about how you are experienced differently by everybody. Think about who you are in your different roles how you're seen at work and how you're seen in family relationships and how you're seen with your close friendships or partners, or the different moods you are in. Each of those is a different being. There's not just one of us. There's not just one of us. We're living in other people's experience. They have their own version of us, the way we're showing up how we're filtered through, how they see us. So when we engage with people to bring a curiosity of how, how am I being seen? Which version of me is being perceived? And sometimes we try to skillfully influence that. And sometimes we just have to let it be. One of the hardest things is letting people dislike us. For many people, it's very hard to know that, for example, if we work with somebody or somebody in our family has an unsavory opinion about us. But we exist, different versions of us exist in different people's minds. We can influence that to some degree, but that's actually a beautiful thing. It's actually a beautiful thing. We're not just one thing. So there's a lot of exploration on the inner level of beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Think about the different internalized versions that you have of people in your life. the impact of those, how you can liberate, liberate those people from those ideas. Then the outer realm. It is a helpful contemplation, I think, to think of the six realms of existence this core part of Buddhist cosmology. And I believe it's helpful because whatever realm we're in, we tend to get ensconced in it and not quite be in touch with the reality of other realms. So reflecting on the six realms is remembering that there are people who are living in hell right now. And whether that's mostly internal or whether it's an external hell. Remember that there are people who are caught up in the animal realm for different circumstances, that all that is available to them is survival. 
scrambling for resources, what happens when we're reduced to instinct for resources. Remember that animals themselves are a whole class of conscious beings. There's so much more going on than just our human-centric world. Apparently, there's a realm of divine beings. People with power are considered a whole realm unto themselves because there's this whole consciousness that comes with having power and defending and protecting that. So to reflect on what it's like to be caught up in that. I know I didn't name all of the all of the realms. Part of a bodhisattva's reflection on the six realms is you think, how can I help people? If I meet this state of mind, how can I help them? If you're sincere in your wanting to relieve suffering, say someone comes into your office who's in the hell realm, what do you do? Or say you meet someone who's caught up in instinct, what do you do? Hungry ghost is the is the realm I didn't mention. We could think of that as the realm of uh, addiction, addiction and and craving with no interim, with no gaps. I think when we practice zazen, the heart has this natural inclination to want to respond and help. We're touched. We when people come forward, we want to respond. How will we do that? Well, one answer is you have to go to hell. You have to become an animal. You have to know from the inside what it's like to be a hungry ghost because otherwise, how can you help them? Another answer is when we're free of these states, then just by embodying that freedom, we reflect a certain kind of possibility. So beings, beings are, are numberless. There are so many people out there who are confused. I count myself among them. There are so many people out there who are confused. It's not to elevate ourselves that we reflect on this, but to see, to see what the effect is on the heart to like let in the staggering sea of human confusion. And what happens when we do that? So that's as far as I'm going to get today. I'm going to continue with the first vow some more next time. These are very rich. <laughs>